This hour is brought to you by American Axle Manufacturing. Our advanced electric drive technology portfolio proves that no one is more ready to bring the future faster than we are. To learn more about our market-ready, scalable driveline technologies, visit aam.com future. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Shift, a podcast about mobility. I'm Pete Bigelow, your host and reporter at the Automotive News. Hi, it's Leslie Allen, editor of Shift Magazine. And it's Alexa St. John, covering tech and suppliers. Joining us on the podcast today, we're pleased to have Kasser Yunus and Peter Ludwig, the CEO and CTO, respectively, of Applied Intuition. Uh, but first, uh, as usual, Alexa and Leslie, uh, never a dull moment this week. Leslie, I know one of the main stories we covered at Automotive News was the uh, registration data from electric vehicles. What uh, what can you tell us about that? Oh, yes. Uh, this is something that's um, pretty exciting for us. We are getting finally a breakdown of which vehicles are that are registered in the U.S. are full electric vehicles. And we, we got that data from Experian. And um, it probably is no surprise to anyone that Tesla dominates the electric vehicle field by far. Of all of the uh, vehicles registered in 2020, some 80% were Tesla vehicles. And what's really interesting with Tesla is the rise of the Model Y. I mean, the Model 3 is still their best-selling vehicle, but the Model Y is just taking off like crazy. It was on the market for less than a year in 2020. And and logged something like 71,000 registrations. The only vehicle that was not a Tesla in the top five was the Chevy Volt, Volt with a B. And um, it's kind of interesting that the top vehicles, EV at least, that are selling in the U.S. are um, from companies that no longer qualify for that $7,500 federal tax credit for electric vehicles that a lot of people see as a way of giving the market a boost. So it was kind of interesting information. And um, if you have a chance to take a look at Monday's automotive news, we have all the numbers in there. That's interesting to think about that tax credit. And I'll be curious to see if, uh, if the Biden administration comes out with a, you know, a similar incentive in some fashion to push EV ownership. I know we hear a lot about an infrastructure bill that will potentially include a lot of money allocated for uh, public charging infrastructure. But I wonder if there'll be a similar tax credit to uh, to kind of push that consumer uh, acceptance just a little bit more. Yeah, for, for all the buzz that we're hearing about electric vehicles, you really have to think they're only a very tiny percentage of the market right now. I think it was um, 1.4% of registrations in, ni- in 2019 and 1.8% in 2020. But interestingly enough, electric vehicle registrations rose last year while registrations of all other vehicles fell, obviously because of the pandemic. So, you know, that's at least one bright spot in the market right now is that EV sales seem to be um, increasing. Just, uh, you know, don't hold your breath for them to become a large part of the market, at least not right away. Well, it is interesting. A lot of these projections that we see are all, you know, that inflection point comes depending on who you talk to sometime between 2023 and and maybe 2030. Uh, But, you know, if we're getting close to 2023, I'll be curious to see if we uh, if we start seeing significant movement uh, in that in that percentage of, of overall sales sometime soon. Uh, so in other EV news, uh, we heard that uh, the charging network company EVGo um, is actually going to be working a bit with Tesla. Um, the company said it's going to retrofit about half of its uh, 800 existing uh, charging stations here in the U.S. Uh, to accommodate Tesla vehicles. Um, and then it also plans to include uh Tesla ports at about 200 stations uh, by the end of the year. Um, And I think this is really part of uh, EVGO's strategy to continue to expand. Um, They're hoping uh, this gives them kind of a a boost in revenue 
um, as it obviously waits for all of those electric vehicles uh, that we know uh, are promised. And uh, we also know that uh, EVgo just recently, a few weeks ago, um, announced uh, its plans to go public via a SPAC, of course, which is uh, the buzzword in the mobility world right now. So it kind of seems like this uh, is, again, another ambitious uh, goal from EVgo. Um, but I think it's, it's a smart one to kind of continue to diversify uh, their partnerships and uh, expand into the market further. Is there any company that has not announced its plans to go public via SPAC just yet? I feel like they're coming on an hourly basis at this point. Pretty much, Pete. I think all you have to do is ask our web editors who are, you know, really being kept quite busy by all of these announcements that come out every day. And uh, speaking of of plans there, maybe not via SPAC, uh, but we did hear that uh, Rivian, the EV startup uh, backed by Amazon and Ford, of course, uh, is planning to go public as soon as this fall. Uh, we saw a report last week. Um, we're not quite sure all the details yet, um, but uh, we know that Rivian has raised more than $8 billion so far uh, from investors uh, obviously, that Amazon partnership in particular is huge. Um, and so this could be, again, not necessarily through a SPAC, but another interesting uh, EV company and, and uh, player in the mobility space uh, to go public this year. Now, Alexa, you've mentioned um, partnerships a couple of times, and I wanted to ask Pete about one of the big stories that came out last week, which was about um, Aurora and Toyota. So you, can you um, maybe give us a little, inform- little more information, Pete, about that? Yeah, I think in the AV world, it was probably the the biggest news last week. And it it certainly was kind of in the cards because Toyota and its uh, supplier, Denso, were investors in Uber's advanced technology group, which Aurora uh, bought uh, earlier this year, that deal closed. So, So no surprise that Toyota, Denso, and Aurora are now getting together to uh, engineer a self-driving Toyota Sienna minivan for robo-taxi purposes. Uh, they hope to have uh, a test fleet on the road by the end of this year. Um, and then they hope to eventually deploy them on the Uber ride-hailing network. So you know, it's, an, it's another one of those stories where you have a group of partners kind of coming together with, with them each taking a slice of, of what they do best to, to try and enable the robo-taxi future. And that might be a good segue into today's guests from Applied Intuition. The company makes software tools and simulation tools that, that help self-driving companies and uh, anyone developing driver assist systems or, or autonomous vehicle systems uh, move faster. Uh, and that's uh, obviously one thing that Aurora is trying to do here with, with their move. Uh, I don't know that Applied Intuition works specifically with Aurora, but uh, they have lots of partners in the, in the auto and tech industries. So without further ado, let's go to our conversation with Kasser Yunus and Peter Ludwig. Kasser and Peter, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Thanks for having us. Uh, you know, it, it's great to have you both aboard because one of the things that we strive to do uh, both in our Shift Magazine and on our Shift podcast is kind of connect the dots between Silicon Valley and Detroit. Uh, and it's a shame that we haven't had you on sooner because I, I can't think of uh, two people who kind of better personify that connection than, than both of you, uh, obviously in Silicon Valley now, but maybe we can kick this off. I'd love to hear about your, your Michigan roots. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so uh, uh, my name is Peter Ludwig. I'm, I'm the CTO of Applied and co-founder of Casser. Uh, I, uh, I grew up in the Detroit area, and actually I'm a, a third-generation automotive engineer. Um, and uh, after graduate school, I, uh, I moved out to California to join Google, and that started my uh, Silicon Valley adventure. Yeah, and uh, my name is Kasser Yunus. I'm the uh, uh, CEO and co-founder with with Peter. Uh, very similar Michigan uh, roots as as P- uh, Peter mentioned. Grew up in the Detroit area. Uh, went undergrad to uh, at the General Motors Institute up in Flint, now known as Kettering University, uh, and uh, was a mechanical engineer. Worked at GM and Bosch, and uh, similarly made made the kind of trek out west. And I've been here for now kind of a decade. So uh, so yeah, I absolutely know both both worlds really, really well. And my personal transition was one where, um, you know, I did personally recognize, I'm a mechanical engineer by trade, but it recognized, hey, software seems to be the future. This is about, 
now 15 years ago, uh, and, uh, and, 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 and very almost dispassionately, you know, uh, moved to Silicon Valley thinking, okay, well, this is where I think my, my future career can be. Uh, and, and it's been fantastic to be able to use, you know, those many early years of GM and Bosch and GMI and all that experience uh, and mixing it with now with Google and Y Combinator and, and kind of my more startup experience. That's fascinating to think that you had that uh, prescient idea that software was the future 15 years ago, because I think every other email in my inbox today is, is all about how the auto industry is, uh, the future is software. So clearly you saw something, uh, you know, a decade and a half prior to, uh, to where we stand today. Was there anything particular or can you take me back to a, to a moment where that, that kind yeah. of hit, hit you with force? There was a there was a manager who became a mentor of mine at at uh, at GM at the tech center and who said something along the lines of um, you know I don't and remember this is uh, this is early two thousands I think that conversation was like two thousand and four and uh, so you know this is pre the two thousand eight and all the kind of machinations that happened in in, in Michigan around that time and uh, his general point was hey uh, you know I haven't seen the big three grow significantly. Uh, and he, I think he said he'd started in 1977 and he said, just think about what, where do you want to go with your career? And, and that's kind of the, the little snowball that started moving down the hill in terms of software and automotive. That wasn't my insight. My insight was just broadly software. And I thought I was leaving automotive altogether. I thought, you know, and that, that's kind of hard feedback to take, right? Where I'm a Mechie, from Michigan, went to GMI, working at GM and being like, well, this is not the right thing. Uh, and it was a hard pill to swallow and um, it's worked out, but it wasn't, certainly was not obvious at the time. I want to, I want to be very clear that it wasn't like, you know, I, uh, I'm a genius and I really understood something. It's just like, uh, okay, you know, where, where, where's there going to be, you know, where are they going to be growing jobs? And, and I also went, uh, you know, notably and importantly, I went to business school at Harvard and that also provided this nice pivot because I'm moving to Boston. I'd come back from Japan for, with, with Bosch and moved to Boston. And that was a just a very natural time to say, clean slate, what am I going to do? And am I going to go back to Michigan? Am I going to go back to GM? Am I going to go back to Bosch or, or one of the big three or, or the suppliers or, or go west and, and made that decision to go west? And Peter, what was your transition from uh, being an engineer coming out of uh, University of Michigan to, to meeting Kasser at, uh, was it at Google that you met ultimately? That's right. Yeah, I was, uh, I was actually in Kasser's group on Google Maps. Uh, this was a long time ago now, but uh, that, that was how we uh, originally became friends. And then, uh, and then after working on Google Maps, I, I got to work on Android for a few years, including on Android Automotive, uh, which is the group that's bringing Android into the, uh, the automotive ecosystem. Did you have a similar kind of experience where you, you kind of knew you wanted to, to get to the, the West Coast side of, of auto tech or, um, you know, what was the step before getting to, to Google Maps? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I've, I've always been uh, really interested in, in both software and in automotive. I mean, dating back as far as I can remember. And, uh, and actually growing up in, in Michigan, my, my father had a really interesting automotive engineering career that was sort of at the, the intersection of uh, the early ADAS systems uh, working on automotive radars as well as uh, software systems that were used in those radars and the tooling all around it. And, um, and then even now dating back uh, 15 plus years, uh, my, my high school experience in, in Michigan uh, as a teenager, I worked at a, uh, an automotive tooling company in, in Michigan uh, working on software tools and automotive. And so uh, growing up, I really had a lot of experience uh, around the uh, the what what is the state of the art of, of software tooling and automotive, and then uh, uh, coming out as a computer science graduate, uh, of course Google was a really exciting and is an exciting company, uh, and and joining there really getting uh, to learn a lot more about uh, what is the state of the art in Silicon Valley, and uh, and understanding that um, the the tools that are that are available to engineers in Silicon Valley. Uh, software engineers specifically, they're, they're absolutely in, incredible. And I do think that uh, tooling can make uh, even, let's say, 100x difference in productivity uh, for engineers uh, when you're comparing a, a great tool to, to a poor tool. And um, I've always sort of had this, this passion for uh, how, can we, how can we make people and, and engineers more productive in their daily work? And, uh, and uh, it's certainly something that I get a lot of sat satisfaction out of when uh, I get to use a tool that that is 
really well built and designed. And uh, so, so some of this all went into uh, inspiration for um, what Castro and I ultimately started working on. There, there's an underlying, I would say, theme there, which is, I think Peter would probably agree with this. I think mean, we still think we're Michigan people. I think, you know, we've lived here for a while. And, uh, but I think emotionally, we feel like our home is, is Michigan. And I, I, I do feel like they're not to be, you know, too cheesy or something. But we want Detroit to win. We want Michigan. We want the auto business to win. And I think, um, and it's not magic. You know, the stuff that, that, that's inside of Google is phenomenal. And the stuff that's inside of Bay Area companies is phenomenal. But I think that difference is smaller than the implied, uh, you know, let's say the, what the market considers or what the, what the average person would consider. Um, it, it, I, interesting stat. There's more engineers actually per capita in Michigan than there are in California. Uh, but those engineers are mostly, you know, mechanical. They're like, like me, not like Peter, right? They're mechanical engineers rather than computer scientists or, or electrical engineers. Or, uh, and so uh, we think that bridge is, is powerful, uh, is, is important, and it's, 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 it's key. Uh, and, and hopefully we can make that dent, you know, in, in our like little small way of, of bringing kind of those, that world-class tooling to, to, to the automotive industry writ large. Obviously, we at Applied, we have offices in Detroit, but we also have it in Munich and in Tokyo and in Seoul, but all under that same category. I think we, we love the car business. And I think there's no future in the car business that's only, you know, uh, uh, the, the traditional epicenters, Detroit, or only Silicon Valley. There is a mix. And because the car is moving more towards this, you know, this the Android auto work that like Peter worked on, you know, more software is becoming more and more important in a vehicle. Before we kind of delve into talking about exactly what you do at, a, at Applied Intuition, uh, I would be curious to get your, your thoughts on, if, if this isn't too broad of a question, what is the current state of the traditional auto industry as you see uh, you know, companies like GM, Ford, uh, Toyota, Honda kind of grapple with this, you know, electric vehicle um, onsets, automated vehicle technology, uh, infusion of software across the board. Uh, you know, what do you think of the auto industry as it stands here in early 2021? I think it's it's very much in a, a state of transition, uh, and, and the trends are exactly as you identified: electrification, and then also uh, these more advanced driver assist and, and autonomy systems. Um, it, it's a, a time right now where I think a lot of uh, a lot of automotive companies are are recognizing that the skill sets needed for the next generation systems are different from the skill sets that were needed from the the, the previous generation systems. Uh, let's say the, the most sophisticated internal combustion engine vehicles, and uh, obviously software is a, a major a major theme there. And particularly the way that software is developed and and deployed, it's very different from mechanical systems uh, in, in the sense of um, uh, agile development is typically considered to be a very effective software development strategy, but that's rarely used in the automotive context, right? Where typically you're talking about um, meeting requirements, meeting software requirements. Uh, that are very firm, uh, writing uh, software, which becomes a binary, which is then baked into the vehicle uh, on the factory uh, and, and is delivered to consumers and, and maybe never touched again to this new world where uh, you want to be able to continually update that software, make bug fixes and improvements. And, and the fact of the matter is that the, the skill sets required to execute that uh, they're just different uh, from, uh, from uh, I would say, the, the previous generation systems. And so uh, we certainly see as, as part of our opportunity to uh, help our customers make that transition and, uh, and, and provide uh, really excellent tooling along that journey. Yeah, completely agree. I think the the other, I would say, answering kind of the uh, the, the state of the automotive as this transition is happening is um, there's a certain amount of... Um, uh, organizational kind of uh, uh, structure that's made based on the type of product that you're working with. So in automotive, you traditionally have these, you know, products that go out every year, they have refreshes or, or, or these platforms maybe that get established that are going to serve multiple vehicles. Those uh, products uh, have organizations behind them. And those organizations look like X. The organizations that ship software look like Y and, and, and companies are trying to make that transition from X to Y. And that's really just fundamentally that it's, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a big opportunity and it's a challenge. Like, like many things, there's, there's two sides of that. And I think 
all those companies you've mentioned, there's the various degrees of success there in making that transition from at, at an organizational level, from a product that is going to be mostly mechanical to, to mostly software in terms of the value derived uh, by the end consumer. Is that is going from X to Y, is that uh, going from a product that you see and forget about to one that you see and not only remember, but refresh, update, enhance? Uh, is that the crux of it or is that uh, one component of what you're talking about? Yeah, I think that's a crux of it. I think the, uh, the, yeah, maybe an, another analogy would be if you look at the growth of uh, mobile phones. They used to be like these flip phones, the Motorola Razors, they used to be dominant. And that used to be the big thing, the Qualcomm's of the early 2000s. And, but, you know, you get to 2010 and very quickly, it's a very different ecosystem. Android has emerged, iOS has emerged, and and there's still a shadow of what they're today. And then you move another five years further down the road. And suddenly in 2010, mobile engineers were, were sacred. Facebook was paying, you know, $80 million for a company just to hire 30 mobile engineers because they needed a mobile app for, for, for Facebook. But you get to, you know, 2015 and, uh, you know, being a mobile engineer suddenly is not the hottest thing in Silicon Valley. And there's high schoolers who are making apps that go on, you know, uh, you know, into the Android uh, play store or into the uh, app store on iOS. And so, that transition is pretty fast, right? You go from a, the phone that you used to basically was the hardware you'd be buying because there was no really no screen all the way to it's just the apps and the apps are being developed by high schoolers, right? So that, and that transition happens in 10 years and in 10 years is like happens in a snap. So, um, but you know, that, 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 that uh, volatility for the lack of a better word is an opportunity. Uh, I think, you know, Mari, Mary Barra has said, uh, you know, the, the years ahead of us are, are the five years ahead of us are going to have more change than the 50 years behind us in the auto industry. And I think that's absolutely true. The downstream impact in terms of the organization X and Y and how it's related to companies like Applied is, you know, how do you work with suppliers and how do you interact with the larger ecosystem? Remember, the, the traditional automotive ecosystem is very, very much you know, built around and with suppliers. And so now you're going through a transition that has an added layer of complexity because it's not only you. It's all of your partners, and they're all going through changes as well. Take me to, you know, you two are working together at Google Maps. Uh, what was the opportunity that you saw before you uh, with regard to applied intuition? And uh, if we haven't covered it quite yet, uh, what exactly is it that you do for our listeners who, who don't know? Yes, yeah, so actually, um, back in 2013, Casper uh, and I, we, we started looking at potentially doing a, a vertical AV company. And uh, we went fairly deep on the idea uh, to, to the point of uh, drawing out plans and, and, and really sort of figuring out how, how to make things work. Um, uh, I don't know, Patrick, if you want to tell more details there. Yeah, exactly. And so th- that was the initial inception, which was like, there probably is going to be a self-driving car company uh, that's going to be independent from Google. And, and maybe we should be the ones who, who build that. And I, I remember coming back uh, uh, to, uh, one time to, 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 to the office and it's had this idea. I was like, man, this is, this is going to have big impacts in Detroit. Like a self, like if there is a real self-driving system, now this is already five years after the urban challenge, right? So we're not talking about the day after or something like this. this is, these are ideas that have been percolating. You know, Tesla is already out there starting to uh, these early days of autopilot and would become autopilot. So, so that was kind of percolating in the back of our mind. And I think ultimately we couldn't, we saw it as a research. This is a long time ago now. Now we're talking about, eight years ago, we thought it was, it was more of a research project than an actual, this is a business that we can actually, you know, take, take to market. And, and therefore we didn't pursue it. Uh, P- Peter stayed at Google and he w- went out to work on Android auto. Cause we thought, Hey, auto is interesting. And then myself, I went to Y Combinator and at Y Combinator, you know, YC for your audience is an early stage uh, accelerator in Silicon Valley. Most relevantly here was the first investor in cruise uh, automation in main mobility and Embark and uh, Scale AI, a bunch of companies that are in the autonomy uh, ecosystem. And I was fortunate enough to be, you know, a, a general partner there and ultimately a COO there. And in my time at YC, not only, you know, does, does Cruise get funded, but Cruise also gets acquired by General Motors. And so in 2016, Peter and I were, were friends. And, and even though we're, we're at, you know, separate companies, we're still talking about hey, something's happening in automotive in a very fundamental way whether it's electrification, whether it's autonomy, something's happening there. And, and we just started talking about, okay, what are interesting businesses to build? And that ultimately led us to applied intuition. 
And so you kind of get to this moment where you, you zig where others zag and you, you decide not to do, we're not going to do a full stack AV company, but we're going to, to make the tools that, that help everybody else move faster. Exactly right. And, uh, and as I mentioned earlier, I, I mean, I think both Castro and I, we've, we've been pretty passionate about uh, tooling throughout our careers and, uh, and tooling is sort of, it's almost the, it's the unspoken superpower uh, in engineering, which is uh, it doesn't necessarily get a lot of, a lot of marketing or a lot of press, but it, it is fundamentally what drives the world, right? Uh, it's tools that allow uh, systems to be built reliably and go to production. And, um, and we just recognize that uh, there's a, a delta between the types of tools that we take for granted uh, in Silicon Valley software companies and the types of tools that are generally available to automotive engineers around the world. And, uh, and we sort of viewed that that delta was an opportunity. And, and that's really where, where we started working uh, initially in, 20, in 2016. And, um, uh, and so what we do today, Applied Intuition, we are, uh, we are a, a tools uh, provider, an engineering tools provider for uh, helping our customers build autonomous and, and driver assist systems. And uh, our, our tools do a bunch of things. Uh, simulation is definitely a core competency, but um, at the highest level, I, I don't think there's a more competent and passionate engineering team in the world uh, uh, working on these types of tools. And I think that uh, that, that sheer uh, competence and, and passion over the past few years has allowed us to build a, a really compelling uh, suite of tools, which we now work with the global, uh, I would say the majority of the, the global OEMs uh, on their autonomy and driver assist systems. Are there, are there uh, customers of yours that you can publicly uh, name uh, just to give us an idea of who you work with, or is it all under NDA right now? Uh, there, there's some uh, success stories on our website, uh, which I can, I can uh, talk about. Uh, Toyota, May Mobility uh, are, are a couple of them, uh, Scania in Europe. So there, there, there are folks, and I won't repeat those here just because it's easier just to go to apply, appliedintuition.com and, uh, and, and, uh, and see them yourselves. Um, I, I, think, I think what, what Peter is, is saying, though, is, is absolutely right. It's not one of the cool areas. You know, you're, you're not going to get, you know, Fortune magazine is not going to write, you know, tooling changes <laughs> <laughs> you know, the world, but if, if you're an engineer, like that's your day to day, you know, you're not, you're not working with paper and pencil anymore, right? You're working with, uh, with a set of tools that allow you to, and so it, it, we, we, we've always been, I mean, literally my last startup as well, not only this one, my last startup was also a tooling company. I mean, we just have always loved this, this uh, domain. Um, and, and I think there's some underlying beliefs we have that are, that are also driving this, which is, the point that Peter said that leverage of an engineer is 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 very much related to the tools at their you know that at their disposal, and so a, a lot of what we do in with our customers, as, as Peter said, a majority of the global uh, the top ten global OEMs use us. Um, we do is we we educate and we say this is what we, what we think is the best way of building software systems in the automotive context. We're not talking about outside the automotive context. We're talking about inside the automotive context, and I think we're. I think we're we are natives in the auto business. We're you know Peter and I and our our, our our upbringings and our families. We're not you know strangers, so we really know what that engineer faces on the on a day to day basis, both from a, a what what's expected out of their tasks, you know, certification to to safety and how important safety is in the in the, in the auto, uh, automotive industry. But we also know just how 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 leveraged uh, these companies in Silicon Valley are because of the, the 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 tools that they have. There's a joke inside of Google, which is Google's like an infrastructure company, and it sometimes builds applications just to keep like you know the consumer happy. And there's like there's real truth in that. Like so much of Google, a shocking amount of Google is just people working on infrastructure and 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 tooling. And then the the outcome is you know are some of the applications. And what's different about building Google Maps, for example, and versus building a car is if you're any of the big three or if you're, if you're, if you're a supplier, you really only care about what the consumer is going to interact with. So tooling doesn't have to be something you do in-house. Now, if you wind back time to the you know 70s and 80s when the initial uh, CAD tools and CAE systems were emerging, OEMs at the time were also thinking that they were going to build them those tools themselves. And they recognize actually there are these competent independent companies that can give us the best tools and we can focus on the product that the end consumer uses. And, and that's kind of, we think the same thing is, is, is you know, that, that same relationship will, will exist and so far has, has existed and I think it works really well. We're going to take a quick break from our conversation with Applied Intuition to hear a word from our sponsor. 
For over 100 years, internal combustion engines have had the road all to themselves. But change is coming, and it's coming at the speed of no sound. At AAM, we're taking our smarts and scale and turning it into the speed of now. Taking our love of axles and connecting them to our passion for amps to drive the world of electrification faster. We're doing things that are so fast, so smart, so innovative that we're disrupting the disruption. We're not a startup. We're a smart up. Saving cost, saving weight, and sparing no expense to develop solutions. Taking oil and making it cool again. Reversing the process of inverter development and embracing the idea of being an engine and not a cog. We believe the future is unified, fortified, and electrified. We're for real, and we're ready. While everyone else is busy making parts and pieces, we're charging toward the electrified future. Because at AAM, we're taking the world by electrical storm. To learn more about our 3-in-1 eDrive system or any of our other market-ready, scalable driveline technologies, visit aam.com future. And now, back to our conversation with Applied Intuition. Uh, Peter, you mentioned simulation. Uh, you know, that's something we hear so much about now with uh, you know, every, every AV company perhaps has its own way of doing things or perhaps they use you to, uh, you know, build out their simulation tools. Can you, you kind of give us some insight on, on what makes for successful simulation? What are your customers looking for from you in that realm? Yeah, absolutely. And actually, uh, maybe I'll start with a, a quote from a, a senior director of a product at Waymo. I think this was uh, in an interview with Morning Brew. Uh, he mentioned that, uh, roughly speaking, simulation has been responsible for about 80 to 85% of our progress. And, uh, and while, the while the cars were off the roads, we were still able to drive just in simulation. And that was a way for the team to continue to make progress, uh, even from home. Um, I, I think that that sort of sums up uh, simulation at the highest level, which is, it is a way for uh, a huge amount of progress to be made without uh, having to do, let's say, the, the iteration with the mechanical system. And, um, and the way that we view simulation within automotive uh, and autonomy specifically is there are many very complicated components uh, in, in each of these systems. And uh, an autonomous system, fundamentally, it's, it's, a, it's a combination of a bunch of really complicated components that individually need to work very reliably and then in conjunction in the full system, need to work very reliably and also be compliant with, uh, with safety standards and, and, uh, and certi certified to various levels. And, uh, and we're building the simulation tooling that allows our customers to, uh, to build each of those modules independently and then also test them all together. And, uh, and simulation can help along every step of that journey. And the more that you can do uh, in your development virtually, uh, the the faster the iteration time is, and fundamentally, that the the faster you can get to production, and also at a lower cost. And so, uh, simulation not only enables, I would say, a cost reduction in the in the final product, but it also uh, it also enables you to do things that just wouldn't be possible to do without these types of tools. And uh, and our real focus is enabling our customers to to really sort of see that. Uh, 10x, 100x benefit of uh, being able to use really great engineering tools in their development. I'll ask a question, even though I'm not the interview, Peter. Uh, why is it so hard? Uh, why, 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 why is it so hard to do what we're doing? At the, you know, that sounds compelling. But, uh... <laughs> yeah, the um, uh, at the highest level, I mean, each of these components in an autonomous system uh, are very, very complicated and. The, uh, the, the types of things that you need to do to, to simulate these things uh, uh, deterministically at low cost, uh, it's, it's frankly, it's very, very complicated. And to, and to do so reliably uh, with, with infrastructure that uh, companies can really depend on and use every day, um, and also do it within a tool that's easy to use. Um, the, the hardest thing to do, and this might sound funny, but I think the hardest thing to do is to take something that's very complicated and make it easy to use. And, uh, and I do feel that this is, uh, this is one of the areas that we're strongest in. Do you get a sense from your customers uh, or from demand uh, what's harder and what's kind of more prioritized right now? Is it driver assist systems? Is it AV? Is it both kind of happening at the same time? Where are you seeing the, the trends in this space? I think for production programs, the level two 
highway type systems are certainly the, the most common thing that's going to market right now. Uh, obviously, uh, I think a, a General Motors Super Cruise offering is really competitive, and I think that's uh, consistently been ranked as uh, as one of the best systems available. Uh, Tesla Autopilot, of course, uh, also a, a really great system. And uh, I think everyone is working on uh, a system like that, which is uh, capable of driving on, on highway roads, uh, generally classified as a level two or some people say two plus uh, for, for some nuanced reasons, uh, but uh, a system that can maintain its lane on the highway and, uh, and also potentially take uh, freeway interchanges uh, to go between uh, multiple freeways. Um, I think the, uh, th that's in the production realm. In the advanced engineering and research realm, uh, certainly there's uh, many organizations working on level four, which is more uh, along the lines of the, um, the, the robo-taxi type system where you can have a, a fully driverless vehicle uh, uh, go from uh, one place to another uh, to transport goods or, or passengers. And I think it is important to kind of delineate those things. Uh, I think often some folks will conf you know, conflate Waymo and Tesla because they're just, you hear self-driving and you hear the word self-driving and it's, a, it's a, you know, within the consumer context, it's kind of an abused term. And, uh, and so, uh, but they are, they are fairly, fairly distinct teams within many of these uh, companies globally that are working on the, uh, on these problems separately. If you had to boil down why it's probably just comes down to cost and getting to production, right? The, 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 the level, the robo taxi systems, you know, generally speaking, again, this is the, these are generalizations are more, much more expensive. They're, the, 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 the sensor suites are much more fully, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, fully spec'd out and therefore as a consumer, when just $500 makes a difference in a purchasing a vehicle or, or an incentive that actually drives demand, you, you can't throw on $5,000 or $10,000 of sensors and just you know ignore that reality, even for premium vehicles. So I think that's what you're seeing is almost, I mean, definitely every, every major global OEM has a strategy for taking the, you know, some level two, two plus three system into production in the next few years. And, and, you know, we're, we're super proud to support many, many of those programs. And, uh, and, and, uh, you know, that's, that's our contribution, uh, uh, you know, so far. Uh, applied intuition. I think within the last two or three months, you closed your series C round for uh, $125 million. What does that money help give you the runway to, to now go out and do? Yeah, we, uh, you know, the, the reason you raise money uh, fundamentally is to to get uh, basically bring those some of those those ambitions in uh, closer and uh, to to than they, they would be if you're just organically growing like a traditional business, and that's really fundamentally the main reason to raise money um, for us. Expanding, you know, expanding our geographies uh, since since that fundraise, we opened up uh, uh, multiple offices and in, in more locations. Uh, it's obviously expanding the number of engineers we have, expanding also verticals. You know, we, we today we've talked obviously for, for obvious reasons, automotive context, but we also work in other contexts as well. We work in construction and mining and U.S. defense and some other uh, other areas as well that we will we'll support with this uh, additional capital. Fundamentally, I mean, you know, if you're one of our customers, you, you get a lot of confidence when the company continues to do well. And one of the ways you can define doing well is having capital at your disposal to invest in the future. Um, you know, Applied is a, is, is a great company already, and, and, and we're hoping that uh, the Series C just shows the broader world that very sophisticated, calibrated investors within Silicon Valley uh, are continuing to, you know, anxiously wanting to buy more of the company is probably a good sign that we're not going anywhere anytime soon. I think we've made a lot of progress in four years, um, but, um, you know, I, I, I'm, I think in the next 10 years, next 15 years, I think we can, uh, I mean, we can make, make a huge, huge impact on, on, on that fundamental problem. How do you, how do you get engineers to be more productive in the automotive context? And how do you bring the entire automotive ecosystem, you know, forward uh, as, as it, as it goes through these you know, fundamental changes? And then for, furthermore, I would say uh, something that we repeat often inside the company is uh, we only win if our customers win. And so uh, the, part of this capital is this is allowing us to, to invest more uh, for our customers and, and to do more for them. So we've talked a lot about, uh, you know, creating the tools to help in an automotive context or in a robo-taxi context. Uh, tell me more about some of those other verticals 
and uh, I'm particularly interested in uh, hearing about like delivery applications, be it the last mile robotics or uh, class eight trucks. Uh, are you seeing a lot of growth and interest from, from that realm? Yeah, I think uh, uh, self-driving trucks is a really interesting space. I think because the the ODD, the operational design domain of self-driving trucks, it's it's more scoped than the the urban robotaxi ODD, and and therefore because it's more scoped, that means the uh, the engineering challenges are are slightly fewer, and uh, and that means that the time to reaching a, a full production system is is also shorter. And so, absolutely, we see a strong interest in in the self driving truck sector, uh, and actually, a, a, it's a it's a good portion of uh, of our business as well, and and helping companies in uh, in that realm, both in Silicon Valley and, and around the world. Casser, last time we talked, you had a book recommendation for me, and it was um, the Adventures of, of a White Collar Man by Alfred Sloan. Fantastic so book. <laughs> I, I have done my homework and and read the book. And, uh, you know, one of the things that stood out to me was that he was the first one to create a uh, R&D program at, at a, you know, big automaker. And, uh, you know, I couldn't help but think of the, the parallels to what you're doing in terms of helping to speed that, that R&D along. Uh, I'm curious what, what you got out of the book. Yeah, I, I think. Uh, by the way, it's it's a it's a not well known book. It's called Adventures of a White Collar Man. If you didn't catch it, it's uh, you know obviously everybody in the auto business knows knows uh, Sloan and Kettering and kind of their impact in in, in the in the at General Motors and, and the auto industry larger. For me, the biggest insight and why I think oh I love the book and I recommend it to everybody who's in the autonomy ecosystem or the automotive ecosystem is how similar the early 1900s are to the early 2000s. I mean, you almost down to the years, like, you know, when General Motors is founded, why General Motors is founded by Durant and Flint and all of the, you know, the coach makers at the time, the Dodge brothers, the, the, just the history of the Detroit area is, you know, it's, it's just absolutely fascinating. It's just fun if you're, you know, you, you see the lineage of a lot of these companies, but then you can almost copy and paste it exactly what you're seeing in the autonomy ecosystem where everybody kind of knows everybody. There's a handful of players that are, that are really, you know, making, making the move. There's uh, uh, just like the uh, uh, auto business in its early days, there's a lot of skepticism. You know, it seems so obvious the car is like a very positive thing. Back then, people were like, well, this is not as reliable as a horse and it, it can't go it everywhere. These cars break down very easily. A horse can go everywhere. And like, it's almost like the jokingly exactly the same thing people say about autonomy. They're like, well, the Tesla can't drive everywhere and, you know, human driven, you can go in a lot of these places. And I think it's also that creation and the, the ecosystem, you know, that's one of the biggest things is, you know, a lot of people don't remember is Sloan worked at a supplier for 20 years, you know, Hyatt Ballbearing Corp, and then came to General Motors. And the, the relationship of the suppliers and the OEMs, and it's an ecosystem. It's something that I, I feel that uh, Michigan, Detroit, the auto industry does really, really well that Silicon Valley still struggles with is how do you deal with technical complexity when it grows very, very significantly, specifically related to suppliers and managing suppliers and working with suppliers. And so for me, it's just, you know, I like it because I love history. Uh, I like it because I like a car business and, uh, you know, anything you can read from Sloan or Kettering, I think is, 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 is fantastic. Uh, you know, is, is, is fun and informative, but for everybody probably listening to this interesting autonomy, it's just, this is not the first time, uh, the, the, these, these, uh, you know, the, the old, old adage that history uh, doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. And I think it's absolutely true, even in the automotive context, uh, how do you see along those lines, how does the kind of traditional relationship between the automakers and the suppliers, how does that really need to change now to, to accommodate this, this new era? Uh, it's a good question. There, number one, there will, be our, there will always be hardware components. That does not appear software product. So you know, Bosch making brakes, that's not going away. Magna making windshield wipers, that's not going away, right? Uh, and so um, I think where where the, the real kind of questions that, that still have to be answered is who does what in the software car, uh, you know, and, 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 and is that, are those interfaces always done at the OEM? Or are they done at suppliers uh, or, or are they done maybe in another way? Um, and if you look at, again, the mobile phone industry as a, as, as a, uh, as an example case, um, Android is obviously important, but 
you know, Google doesn't make all the phones. The Pixel is low single digit percentage of phones uh, of, of the Android ecosystem. It's 90 some percent, you know, uh, Samsung is really the big player. That is a very hard ecosystem to guess in 2005 when, you know, iOS doesn't exist and the, the, the iPhone doesn't exist and Android doesn't exist in the way that we think about it. And you have the J2ME phones and you have the flip phones back in the day. So I think if I'm a OEM, if I'm an executive at an OEM, an executive at a supplier, I think I recognize software is going to be a big thing. I'm, I'm aware that, and I, I, you, you have to, you, you have to anticipate that there's going to be a different industry in five years and you're now making decisions for that different industry. I think if you keep assuming that it's going to be the same going backwards, you know, look as, as we look backwards, I think you, the companies are not going to be positioned. Well, it's kind of like if you're playing tennis or any sport, you know, the position matters, you know, it's hard to take the swing if you're not in the right, if you're not in the right position. And so I mean, if I, if I am an OEM and if I am a supplier, in many ways Applied plays that role as a supplier uh, to, to many of our customers, having that conversation actively, what does this mean? What is the car going to look like? What, where, 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 uh, where are we going to be in three years, five years, seven years, 10 years? And, and uh, you know, moving, moving your companies towards that. A lot of the OEMs, this is not a surprise to OEMs. There's a lot of conversation around this. Now the question is who actually picks the right path? who understands the ecosystem correctly. And as you know, like we as at Applied, as we work with, again, the, the global automotive ecosystem, a hallmark of what I think of the companies that are going to do well is their ability to make decisions quickly and their abilities, you know, they're, 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 we'll, we'll, we'll showcase the same tools to company X and that might take six months or, or, or a year to evaluate. And another company might take weeks and they're in the same global ecosystem, right? And so as an organization, really what we're saying is how do you go take that hardware model and move to the software model where you're just iterating much, much faster and, and you're making decisions because you can unmake those decisions because they're not, they're not hardware decisions, right? Um, and so I think, yeah, it's, 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 it, that can be probably a three, uh, three-hour conversation where we're kind of reducing to um, the, the business is going to look different in the next few years and how do you position your individual company to best leverage uh, that future? Now, it's very interesting that, that you both are in a position where you're getting that broad industry view. And I'm sure you see with your clients, a lot of them have, you know, know their own particular swim lane very well, but, uh, but don't get the opportunity to see how it's done elsewhere and, you know, how a decision maybe takes 16 weeks versus, four at, at one place versus another might be a great example of, of exactly how, uh, you know, people have the opportunity to move faster than they have in the past. Yeah. So, sometimes, frankly, it's just, uh, there's individuals that within the company that are leaders that make the call, right. And making the call is actually really tough, uh, because the, the, there's a traditional system, which is going to, you know, which buys rubber and, and now you're looking at software and that's, different. It's not, you don't just write a spec sheet and you don't just, you know, you don't look at the bomb and, and then that's it. And, and you, you make a decision. It's, it's just fundamentally a different, a different, um, almost decision motion. But again, I think that the underlying mechanics there are, you're moving from a hardware product to a software product. And therefore you have to, you end up having a different type of organization uh, again. And no surprise, lots of companies have publicly, you know, General Motors, Toyota, a couple of others publicly said that that's the future. And we're really moving to being very software centric and, 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 uh, and, you know, we very much agree with that. And, and, and with our customers, we want to help them get to those goals. As Peter said earlier, Applied doesn't succeed if our customers don't succeed. And so we try to share our knowledge and our best practices uh, with them and you know, broad, broad strokes of, of, of software development. As our time uh, runs close to uh, out here, I'm curious, uh, maybe a great way to end this. So you've given me Adventures of a White Collar Man uh, by Alfred Sloan. Uh, for either one of you, what, what's the next book, uh, you know, be it, be it auto tech related or, or beyond? What's, uh, what's on the the reading list now. Uh, my, I, 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 I'm a big fan of uh, the older the books, the better. Uh, they, they've stand, they, 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 they stood the test of time and they filtered through. So I try not to read actually, you know, what's in the airport. Uh, well, for many reasons right now, <laughs> what's in the uh, airport. Uh, uh, so the, the, the other book I'd recommend if you, if you, if you're interested in this general topic of, you know, uh, auto autonomy and software uh, and Silicon Valley uh, it would be there's just a, again a not well known book by Bill Gates called The Road Ahead where he tries to predict the future 
And he wrote it in the mid nineties. And, uh, and then it's amazing to read a book where he's trying to predict 10 years into the future. And that future is already now many years behind us. You know, we're already almost uh, 15 years beyond what he, the, the end point he was predicting at a couple of things really, well, I'll let you read it, but, but with the highest, the highest point is, uh, it's not a coincidence that Bill Gates is, uh, <laughs> is who Bill Gates is. It's, it's amazing how many things he gets right. And so the point being, if you're a listener at home, is we, we, we have a sense of where the auto industry is going. So we shouldn't be surprised. Um, you know, it, 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 now the question is, how do you just execute against it? And, and you know, maybe 10 years ago, we could have said, hey, Tesla is kind of a joke or these other companies, but that we're already past that now, you know, 10 years has already happened. And so that book is such a great book because um, you want to keep adjusting your decision-making process. And you can kind of see a little bit of Bill Gates's, like, why does he believe the future is going to be like this? And then we've had, we had the, you know, we've, uh, there's a great line by Gandhi, which says truth is what stands the test of time. We've gone through that time. You can see what is Bill Gates? What was he right about? What was he wrong about? And that's specifically about the software business, but I think it can be applied uh, to, to the auto context as well. Excellent. Uh, Peter, any book recommendations or, or other closing thoughts? Uh, let's see. I, I, I'm, I'm uh, very much on the, on the technical side, uh, so I, and I'm, I'm pretty deep in, in a bunch of ISO standards right now, but uh, <laughs> maybe not, not be. <laughs> You're not the first guest to say that, uh, so not, not a surprise. So not, not, not the most uh, thrilling reading material, though very, very important. Uh, well, thank you both so much for making the time today. Great conversation. Enjoyed it and, uh, and really appreciate it. Thanks for having us, Pete. Really interesting conversation, Pete. Uh, again, a big thank you to Applied Intuition for joining us on the podcast today. Uh, Pete, who do we have coming up next week? Next week, we are talking to Allison Malik from the Center for Future Mobility. Uh, which should be a great conversation. They have a lot of new initiatives that are just launching pretty much as we speak. So uh, look forward to getting the latest uh, from Allison. Uh, that is it for this week, though. Thank you for listening, and uh, we will be back next Monday. <laughs> <laughs>